Father God, we come uh, before you and we pray now for our world, uh, our country, and our church. Uh, and Lord, as we come before you on this day, uh, Lord, we recognize that uh, the world, it seems, is waiting on the brink of war in Ukraine. Uh, and Father, our hearts uh, cry is that you would provide peace. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, provide a cessation to uh, this increasing tension. We pray, Lord, that you would save lives from being lost. Lord, we pray that uh, leaders would be able to agree, and Lord, we pray that justice would prevail. Uh, Lord, in your mercy, would you please hear our prayer? And Father, we pray for uh, our brothers and sisters in the land of Cuba, where I understand there has been 500% inflation. And Lord, we pray for uh, the poverty that's, that's uh, overwhelming them, the needs that are overwhelming, and we pray that you would be with your church. Lord, we've read recently of a revival of prayer in Cuba, Lord, where they are showing uh, a leadership position uh, in this spiritual discipline. Lord, we pray that you would hear their prayers uh, supernaturally, that you would provide for your church, that you would grow them and bless them and sustain them. Um, and show yourself to be the God of miracles uh, in this time of need. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And Father, we pray for our own nation and our neighbors to the north uh, and, and these protests that are going on. Lord, we, we pray that you would give our leaders wisdom and justice uh, and mercy to rule and govern well. We pray, Lord, that there would be harmony between uh, the citizens and their leaders, Lord. And so we pray that you would bring a, a resolution to these things. Lord, we, we desire, as the Apostle Paul told us to pray, uh, that we would live at peace with all men. Uh, that we would be able to devote ourselves to the preaching of the gospel and the doing of good works. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring uh, a season of great renewal uh, in our land uh, and in throughout the whole world. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And Father, we pray lastly for our own town and for our own community. We pray particularly for those who are coming in here today uh, depressed and anxious, uh, suffering in their bodies. Uh, we pray for those who, for whom relationships are broken and injured, Lord, we pray that your grace would overshadow each of us. Lord, we pray for healing. We pray for spiritual renewal. We pray for new seasons in relationships. Lord, we pray that you would raise uh, the depressed to um, experience the joy of their salvation. Lord, we pray that you'd calm the fears of those of us who are dealing with that this morning. We pray for a movement of your Holy Spirit. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. So I wonder uh, how many of you in your households had what we had in our household around bedtime, what I would call the battle of bedtime, which uh, the child or children try anything to extend the time that they're staying up because they do not want to go to sleep. And they come up with great excuses. You know, you get them all down, you get everything settled, and it's all done, and then they say, Mommy, can I have a drink of water? And you're thinking, oh my gosh, I don't want to deprive my child of water. You know, I would be a bad parent. So you get the water, you get him down again. Then, then, Daddy, can you tell me a story? And maybe, you know, you, you tell him a story. So it's all, it's all plot. It's all battle to extend the bedtime to stay up later and later. I, I just like, maybe I could ask for a show of hands. How many of you ever experienced that in your household? Ah, oh, it's not just us. What do you know? 
Let me ask you, those of you who raised your hand, is there any prize-winning excuse that you've heard from your child, maybe you could share, that this actually was very effective, that they kind of won in the battle? Anything that came up that you've heard that like, wow, this really got me and I, you know, I lost the battle? Any of you think of some? I took a nap today, so I should stay up later, okay? <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty good one. You know? I'll tell you a one that I remember. Yeah, what's that in the back? It's the weekend. Come on, Mom, it's the weekend. That's one of them. I was going to say, I remember the thing that really gets you. I'll just tell you, young parents, get ready for this one. Daddy, Mommy, I have a question about God. Your parent's heart says, oh my gosh, I've been waiting for years to talk to them about God. Now I can do it. Now I can talk to them about God. Of course, they've got to stay up and talk about it. They won. They won the battle. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe surprise you this morning, so, uh, go in a little bit different direction, because I'm going to actually stand up for your kids uh, this morning. I'm going to say that there's something righteous about them not wanting to go to bed. There's something righteous about them not wanting to go to sleep. Yeah, I'm standing up from. You can't believe it. But take me, you know. I still don't want to go to bed. I still, I still have this struggle that I, I want to prolong the day longer. I, it's not because of insomnia I could go to sleep, but I don't want to go to sleep. I want to prolong the day because there's more that I want to do or there's more that I want to read or more that I want to watch. And so I'm still in the same place. I'm still doing the battle of the bedtime, always with myself. And, you know, if you get particularly frustrated with your child, you could tell them that, you know. You could say, you're just like Pastor Sam, you know. Maybe scare them into bed, you know, <laughs> something like that. But that, I want to say that this is something that's righteous that you and, and your children and I share together, this desire to not let the day end, to not go to bed. And I would suggest to you that is because that is where we're headed, to a time when there's no more night, no more darkness, and no more going to bed. Please stand with me as we hear from the final chapter of the book of Revelation, the passage, our last chapter Revelation chapter 22, and Katie's going to read it for us this morning. All right, Revelation 22, 1 through 10, 16 through 17, and verse 20. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree... We're for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp nor sun, for the Lord of God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. 
And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the, the words of the prophecy for this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Praise or thanks. It's both good. Both are good, yeah. So I, I've never uh, preached through uh, the book of Revelation before. We did it just, just now here at our church. I've never done that before, and that's because smart preachers avoid this book. You know, you can get a, a set of commentaries from John Calvin, the great uh, Bible commentator, the great theologian, and you can get a beautiful set of these. You get them in this box, and they take them out, and they're, they're bound with brown and gold. It's a beautiful set, right? And when you get this box, if you, if you order the whole set, you open up the box, and the first thing you see at the top of the box, on the top of the books, is this little slip of pink paper. You take it up and read it, and it says, John Calvin never wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. And you're like, what? Why am I getting this message <laughs> the first thing I open the box? And the reason is because when you take the books out of the box and you put them on your shelf and you line them up, you say, oh, isn't this nice? It's beautiful. You line them all up and you put them in order and you find that the last book is on the book of Jude. And so many people have done this. They set it up on their shelf and they, and they realize, hey, there's no book of Revelation. And so they call up the company and the company, and they say, hey, you forgot to send me the last book. I don't have Calvin's commentary on the book of Revelation. And the people at the company say, that's because John Calvin never wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. And you realize that the company got tired of answering all these phone calls. They wanted to forego the phone calls, so they finally said, well, just put a slip of paper to tell people right off the bat. There is no commentary on the book of, Je on the book of Revelation. Why? Because John Calvin was smart. <laughs> And even if, you know, I don't know if you've been in churches where they've done series of the book of Revelation before, what you do, when, even if you do a series on the book of Revelation, is you do the messages to the churches, you do the beginning of the book of Revelation, then you skip right to the end, at least in our tradition, you skip right to the end, you do the end of the book, and that's it, that's the series. Why? Because they're smart churches. <laughs> but we did not. We did not. We went through the book of Revelation. We brought out what we could identify as the major themes of the book. We did the whole thing here with you today, uh, this, this season. And we're coming to an end now. We're going to close the book today. And I'm very sad, actually. I'm sad. I'm so glad that we decided, made this decision to do the book because it's been so inspiring for me. I don't know about for you, but it's really inspired me you know, if you look at um, verse 7, 
we're told again, this is a prophecy that what we've read here in the book of Revelation is a prophecy. And you remember what the point of prophecy was? You remember that? It was to get you to do something. Remember, that's the, that was the point of prophecy. That is the point of prophecy, to get you to do something. And the book of Revelation has gotten me to do things. It's actually changed things in my life. So I guess it's been, it's been effective as a prophecy. It's got me to, to, to do different things with my money, even. So it's been a prophecy to me. And so I'm sad. That's one of the reasons I'm sad that we're leaving it. I'm also sad because it really gives us insight, I've found, into our times, right? You look at verse 6 of what we just read, what Katie just read, and you say, you know, the angel says, what's in this book? What you've been seeing is something that must soon take place. You see that in verse 6? Must soon take place. And so that has determined our approach, that sentence, that what we're getting in the book of Revelation is something for their time. This isn't like Daniel, says the angel. Don't seal up the vision, verse 10. Don't seal up the vision, not like Daniel. This is for you. And so we've taken the approach of going back and trying to understand in the first century what was going on in Asia Minor, in this area to which John was writing, right? During that time. And we found it's been, it's been able to give us much wisdom about our time. Because when we understood what John was writing to, the message that was being given to them in their time, in their place, it then helps us to understand how to apply it in our time and place. So it's actually granted, I feel, me a lot of wisdom about our times and, and what, what, how to understand our cultural engines of the media and the government and the economy. And so that's why I'm sad, uh, because uh, we're closing the book today. I'm also sad because of all the books of the Bible, the message of grace is here, perhaps, most clear in this book. As we saw even last week, we looked at John's picture of the final judgment and what happens at the end. It's a message of grace. And you can see it again here in verse, uh, we got verse 17, right? If you want the water of life, come and get it without price. And John, again, calling uh, to memory Isaiah, who says, Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's free. The water of life is free for you. Message of grace, deep message of grace. That's another reason I'm sad we're closing the book. But probably the reason I'm, I'm most sad today that we are ending our series is because this book shows us where we're headed. This book gives us our destiny. After the kingdom has come, right? Remember we saw the middle part of the book was all about how the kingdom was actually going to come to earth, how it was going to be accomplished. And after judgment has been done, and after all wrongs have been righted and all rewards rewarded and evil has been decisively ended, what's left? What's left for us? What comes after that, after 
All other things is gone, are gone. The answer is given to us in verse 3. If you look at verse 3 with me, what does it say? And his servants will worship him. Our destiny is worship. That is the final feature of our forever. It's worship. And they, verse 3 says there's no abomination to distract from worship because abominations are what distract us from this end, worship. And that is why John, verses eight through, in verses 8 through 9, you know, John gets to the end. He's heard it all. He's seen it all. All that's been revealed, all that would be revealed is revealed. And what is John's response in verse 8? What does he do? He falls down to worship. See that? And what does the angel say in verse 9? He says, yeah, good. That's the right response. The end of it all, the purpose of it all is worship. Only don't worship me. You have to make sure you're worshiping God. And several scholars have noticed that if you wanted to try to tie everything together, if you wanted to say, what's the central theme of the book of Revelation? Uh, The answer of a number of scholars is, it's worship. You know, there are so many things, as we've talked about, that John brings up in the book. So many themes, so many uh, images, so many references, so many allusions. And you say, well, what ties it all together? What's like the overriding theme? Uh, A number of scholars have noted it to be worship. Why? Because all the things that happen, all the action in the book is punctuated at different times with hymns. You know, things get revealed or people get to see things or, some, or things happen, and then it's, it's interrupted, it's punctuated by people breaking out in song or falling down uh, before the throne. They're worshiping. And uh, these scholars have noted that the theological messages of the book are, are communicated through these hymns, that you get kind of the theology of the book when these people break out into their praise, into their worship, into their communion with God. So it is our destiny to worship him, to behold him. And I can tell you, I can't wait. I can't wait to reach that phase of our existence, to lose ourselves over and over again in worship. So that's number one. The the second point that I want to make is about what we worship. Well, if it's going to be worship, what do we worship? Who do we worship? And so we find the emphasis in this last chapter, this last passage of the book of Revelation, to be what we're, where we started in the first chapter. Okay? See, John teaches us how to read all the rest of the books of the Bible. In this last book of the Bible, he teaches us how to read all the books that came before and how to conceive of God. And it's really remarkable the number of different images that he uses to talk about God, the number of different ways that he teaches us to say, ah, oh, this is how to look at God. There are, so, there, there are so many diverse terms that he uses. And it's very clear as, as he talks, as he goes on, that he's talking about three and yet one. There are hardly any overlaps in the designations that he gives for the different uh, ones of the three. It's making it clear that he has three distinct persons. 
in view when he's talking about the throne. And we saw that in the beginning, right? If you remember Revelation chapter 1, in the very greeting, what does he say? He says, grace and peace to you from the one who was and is and is to come and from the lamb and from the seven spirits or sevenfold spirits there at the throne. And each of them is fully and equally able to communicate grace to us, able to communicate peace to the readers. And so if you look at these three through the book, you find that they are referenced many times distinctly. You have 124 different references to the first one. Very often it's just theos, God, we would translate God. 124 different times. There are about 80 different references to the second one, to the lamb. Most of the time, it's the lamb. But he also has about 50 different titles in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ. And then there are 18 different references to the third one. Mostly, it's, it's the spirit is the way he's referred to. But they're all throughout the book, clearly distinct persons, but equally sharing in God's attributes. They're worshipped, like we saw in Revelation 4 and 5, the one, on the, one who, was, who is and was and is to come, and the Lamb in parallel. They're worshipped, they're, they're dispensing grace. They're responsible for what's going on, Right? And so we look at verse 1 in our passage here. In verse 3, you look at the throne. And once again, you see that, that it's unclear. Who is, that, who is on the throne? It says God and the Lamb. They, they seem to share the same throne, right? As I mentioned before, who's exactly sitting on the throne? Is it God? Is it the Lamb? Is, are they, oh, whose throne is it? Right? Because it's both. And yet John never uses a, like a, um, a plural verb to refer to them. And he never says they do this or they do that. They're, all, they're distinct, and yet they're one. They're not separate. Distinct but not separate. In fact, if you look closely there at verse 1, you have the passage. It's on page 13 of your bulletin, or page 12 if you have your bulletin. If you look closely at verse 1, you'll see all three. There's God, there's the Lamb, and there's the water of life flowing out from the both of them. That's what we see at the end. And that's significant because if we remember Jesus Christ's teaching about the Holy Spirit, places like John 4, John 7, the Gospel of John, this is how he refers to the Holy Spirit, as the water of life coming forth. And the, in the, that gospel, it says, he's talking here about the Holy Spirit that they're going to receive. So all three of them there, it, it, and you notice that the water of life proceeds from the two of them together. Very interesting, very significant. Right? It shows us that they're inseparable in their operations, even if one of them, you know, an action is sort of characteristic of one of them. 
They're all participating in it. This is who we are coming to worship. There is no God other than the persons of God. And so to rightly worship, we approach the persons, not some abstract force in the sky. Coming to know and commune with these persons. Now, if you don't do this, if this is not your worship, then it's, it's kind of like you know, getting to know a family, but not really knowing who does what in a family. And then you find out later, and you're like, wow, I never realized that was uh, that person that did that. I was the person who was responsible. So it's like, it's like coming into our church, Ironworks, right? And, you know, you see this beautiful artwork uh, uh, for the sermon series or on the website. And you come up to Darren, you say, that's beautiful artwork that, that kind of enhances the sermon series. And Darren smiles politely and says, thank you, thank you very much, because it's too much to go into every time. But if you get to know the church, if you get to know us, and you understand what's going on, you realize what you're really looking at in that beauty is Becky Olson. You didn't know that, right? You find out later, like, wow, I never knew that, you know? And it's okay, because, you know, we're one church, and Darren is actually involved. He's participating in it and overseeing it and giving direction, you know, but... If you really want to attribute appropriately, be like, well, that's Becky Olson. Or if you come in here, you know, and you come into this beautiful space, and you say, wow, what a great, actually, worship today. What a great design. You know, and it is great. I, I love coming to Ironworks. I love coming into any of the rooms here in our complex that we have, whether it's the offices or, the, or here in the sanctuary or uh, the nursery where I hang out, I tend to hang out. It's, it's just inspiring to walk into any of these rooms. So you might come up to me and say, Pastor Sam, great worship space. And I say, thank you, thank you very much. But, you know, if you actually come and get to know the church, if you get to know our history, something our history, and you realize that when you're looking up here, you're really looking at Dave Wagner. Dave Wagner's designs. And Dave doesn't mind because, you know, we're one church. Yeah. <laughs> but if you really want to know us, really want to understand us, you would, you would stop saying inappropriate things. You know, you, you, would, attribute a, you would attribute rightly. Now, friends, this is the, the regular daily experience of the Trinity. <laughs> it's a regular experience of the Trinity. And so very often, you know, people will start praying. They'll pray to the Father and and then at some point in the prayer, they'll thank him for dying on the cross, you know, and, and God smiles politely, you know, because it is one God. It's okay. It's one God. But you know what really excites the persons of the Trinity is when we actually take the time to care to know them, who they really are as they've been revealed to us in the scriptures. That's something that they really treasure and that's when we really begin to commune with them, right? To get it right. And if you want to head start on this, so actually I can recommend a resource. It's by a guy named John Owen. And the book that I would recommend is called Communion with the Triune God. Now you say, who's John Owen? John Owen was, um, he was a, 
I guess I would call him a, uh, a theologian, but he was really an army chaplain. Uh, and he is, that, he, he is the one uh, after whom your senior pastor named his firstborn. Because Owen wrote profoundly on this experience of communing with the different members of the Trinity. And he wrote this book. Um, I'd recommend communion with the triune God. Only I'd recommend a modern version. Because um, remember, this is in the 1600s that, uh, that he lived. 1654, he wrote this. And there's a modern version, I think, uh, edited by Kelly Capick and Justin Taylor uh, that just, just presents it in a way that we can appreciate today. And what you do in that book is you go back with Owen to the scriptures and you start distinguishing the members of the Trinity, what's talked about, how the way the Bible talks about them. You realize the differences in the way in which they've worked in our lives and how the Father is really love, that grace is, is, a, is, a, is a characteristic um, act because they all share the same characteristics, but the characteristic act through the Son, the fellowship of the Spirit, you get these different things. It's masterful. It's really well done. Or you could, you know, Owen is a great help, but you could go back to the Bible yourself and just read it, distinguish the persons in what you read, and so contemplate and praise and receive and thank and respond to them particularly in their work for you, in their, as Owen would say, peculiar way with you, peculiar work for you. Verse 4, that's what John is talking about. We will see his face, the face of themselves, the beatific vision. That's what we'll be doing for all eternity. We'll be coming to know themselves. That's eternal life. That's eternal life. That's our destiny. There's one more thing that I want to bring out for us today. And that is the way we come to know this one whom we will commune with, this one whom we will worship. The way is lit by the bright morning star. And he speaks to us in verse 16, where Jesus says, I am the one, I am the root, I am the bright morning star, and he lights the way for us to know God. And so that's why, Revelation 1, we have a doxology to him. We saw in the beginning, right? Doxologies are supposed to be just for God, right? You only get a doxology to God. But in Revelation 1, it's to Jesus, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this, by the way, really influenced the early church to worship Christ. They wanted to worship Christ, and this verse in Revelation 1 told them, yeah, you're doing the right thing in worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is appropriate for him to be exalted. You know, the longer I live, there's one thing that I become more and more sure of. There's one thing that I have become more and more convinced about the longer that I live, and it is this, that Jesus Christ really is the hero in the situation. He really is the hero. And you say, Pastor Sam, what situation? And the answer is, every situation, (laughs) any situation, actually, he's the hero. See, I used to think that I was the hero of my life, that I I was the real protagonist of my life, in the story of my life. 
I come to realize more and more, more and more convinced of this, I'm not, but he is. And I've come to see this because there are answers to burning questions in life which I do not possess. And I don't have the answers to these burning questions. But he does, I find. I find that he does. You know, and I look at my children, and I find that there are times I cannot be for them what they need me to be. I should be able to be what they need in a father, but I find I am not able to be what they really need. I should be, but I can't be. But he is. And so he says, here am I and all the children that thou hast given me. Or, when I look at my wife, which I want to do, which I like to do, and I realize there are times when I cannot be for her what she needs me to be. I cannot be the man that she needs me to be. I should be able to be. You know? And sometimes she says to me, you know, you're... I know you're trying, but you're not helping me. She actually said that, something like that to me this morning. I know you're trying, but you're not helping me in what you're saying. <laughs> She's usually very more polite than that. But she said, you're not helping me. And it's true. I, and those are the times I'm trying. <laughs> those are the times I'm really trying. I find that I'm not enough. I'm not enough of a man that she needs me to be. Should be able to be. Should be. I'm not. He is. He is. Or, you know, when I come to church, I am, uh, I'm really not up to this task of being a pastor, I find. You know, there are times I look out at your needs, I look at the needs of, of the people here, and I just say, these needs are beyond me. They're beyond my ability to help. What they need is beyond me, but it's not beyond Jesus. Should be able to help, but I can't. And he can, and he is, and he does, and he was to those around him. You know, there was one time, Darren, Pastor Darren brought it up this morning in the liturgy, where the disciples were, were ministering to people, and they were helping to people, but, but they were by themselves. They were all by themselves, and they were, they were just helping people. And this one man comes up, and he has this problem with his child. His child has been gripped with evil, and it's his only child, his one son. And he comes up to the disciples, and he says, can you help us? Please, can you help us? And they had been trained. They had been equipped in various ways. They tried everything they knew, these men yet they couldn't help him. And it's very clear the way it's written in all three Gospels. It's written, it's, it's, it's gotten in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story appears. And the way it's written, it's very clear they should have been able to help him. They should have been able to. But they just, they just couldn't. And then Jesus shows up, he asks the father a few questions, 
and then he, he banishes the evil. He just does it. And that really says it all. That's the message of the Gospels. And I think it's the reason why all three of them capture this story. The burden of the Gospels is to tell us, this is what it was like to have him living with us in our lives. This is what it was like. He was the hero every time. He was the hero. So that is what we mean when we say he is the bright morning star. And ironically, you know, is when I come to see that is when I can actually be heroic. When I come to understand that, when people come to understand it's when they can really engage in heroism, to understand he's the real hero. And this is what our destiny is to be telling him that. So, you know, if my whole life comes to naught, if I lose all that I'm wrought, as the song says, it, and he is still exalted, it's okay. Because he's the one who really deserves the praise. And if I can just stay up and, and hide in a corner of the temple and, and be a witness when the king of glory passes by, that will be bliss for me. I will be supremely happy. Because it will be his name written on our foreheads. You see that in verse 4? His name will be written on our foreheads instead of the prostitute's name in first century Rome. You remember that? Prostitutes had their names on their foreheads. It won't be, it won't be their names anymore. And actually, by the way, I think John, John was writing to some prostitutes of first century Rome, the Roman Empire here. He's saying, you know, it's not going to be your name on your forehead. It's going to be Jesus Christ's name. There is no more stark identification you can have to have someone's name across your forehead, only it's not ours anymore. We're no longer prostitutes. It's going to be his name on our forehead. Because, I mean, there's no more... It's, it's his life that we're lives, our lives are hidden in. He owns us. And so, friends, if you, if you feel like your life is not working out, if you feel like you're not getting the prize that you thought you should, you're not getting the rewards, not happening the way you thought it would, it's not happening the way it should have had, you can still glorify him for being the hero. If it isn't me who works out in my life to get the prize here, but it's him, that's appropriate. And that is what we will, we will be saying forever. Forever. And so in verse 5, that's what it means when it says there's going to be no more bedtime. God will be our light. See verse 5? God will be our light. So there'll be no more night, no more darkness, no more bedtime struggle, never, never having to go to bed because he will be our light and our lives will be found in him. So this feeling of not wanting to go to bed will be fulfilled at last. 
And you can tell your children that, even though if right now they do need to go to bed. (laughs) That is our destiny. And so with verse 17, that's why we say, with the Spirit, come to Jesus. Come back. Come quickly. Come soon. And in verse 20, the last thing that God says in the book, surely I am coming soon. Amen, says John. Come, Lord Jesus, come, because you are the real hero. Let's celebrate that now at the Lord's table. Please stand with me. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. It is right to give you thanks, to give you praise, because you have shown us the final feature of our forever. And it is to finally fulfill this longing, this longing to not end the day, because you will be our light and there will be no more night. And we look forward to that time, Lord, with great anticipation because of what you have done for us. And so we join our voices now with all the company of heaven in their unending hymn of praise.